This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. I'm John Dunn, and today is Thursday, June 11th. Two and a half weeks ago in Minneapolis, George Floyd was killed by police. Since that time, the nation has seen some of the biggest protests and demonstrations in the country's history in all 50 states. Emotionally, this is hard. For those of us at the privileged end, even watching a video of a man die at the hands of another man can shake us to our core. And for others in our country, that video is a reminder of the way things simply are and always have been. It's a time like no other, certainly in my lifetime, and the ensuing debate over race and law enforcement and how we relate to each other as human beings has tested friendships and families. It is a difficult road that lies ahead. And in our life-saving work, we are beginning to fully realize the necessity to be more inclusive and diverse. It's not only a moral imperative, it's critical to help us save more lives. So as we attempt to heal individually and together as communities and also build a better system that works equally for all, skills are available that we can learn and use to help us be what today's guest calls our best selves. Over the last 20 years, Dr. Mark Brackett has focused on the role of emotions and emotional intelligence in learning, decision-making, relationships, and health. With his new book, Permission to Feel, Mark continues his life mission to educate the world on feelings and emotion. Those of you who are seeking to change the world, which I know is every single one of you, need to know this. Dr. Brackett's career is impressive. He's the founding director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. He routinely consults with companies like Google and organizations like the United Nations. We've got his full bio up on our website at bestfriends.org podcast. You'll also find links and other information related to the things talked about in this episode. Again, bestfriends.org podcast. Now, without further ado, Amy Charlton, one of the producers of the podcast, sat down with Mark to understand how we can give ourselves permission to feel. Welcome, Dr. Brackett. So glad to be here with you on the Best Friends podcast. I just want to tell you that I've had a lot of different feelings about preparing for this podcast and uh, some excitement, some nerves, but I made myself pause and go, okay, wait a minute. How am I really feeling about this? And started to like second guess myself. Are you having anyone else telling you this as they're interacting with you? Are they like, second guessing how they're really feeling about things? Are you having that happen? It does happen a lot. Unfortunately, a lot of people are asking me about how I'm feeling, which I tell them, you know, it's my job to ask the question, not to answer it. (laughs) (laughs) I bet, I bet that does happen. Um, Well, I also need you to know too, that I am a student myself of emotional intelligence, both professionally and personally. And one of the things that I've noticed as I've studied this work is that I do, I feel like a lot better job professionally handling myself than I do utilizing those skills at home. So tell me a little bit about that. How do you feel about that? Um, I couldn't agree more. Um, You know, I'm a supposed expert, right, in emotional intelligence. And I tend to, people in the real world think I'm like, wow, you're so, you know, calm and you know, easy to work with. Well, I'm not sure everybody who works with when they say that, but, and at home I've been, you know, a mess. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
it is contextual, but um, it's funny. We have a term that we call being an emotion scientist or an emotion judge. And I realized like I'm a complete emotion scientist with the people I know the least and a total judge with the people that I love the most, which is not great. So it's a continuous uh, improvement project. Good. You make me feel so much better about myself. Because <laughs> if my kids were listening right now, they'd be like, why is my mom doing this podcast? Uh-huh. No, I'm just kidding. Um, actually, I'm not. They probably would say that. So I do, however, consider myself a lifelong learner, and I will take that one to the bank. And so that's what's been so fun about um, reading your book. And I have to tell you that I listened to a podcast of Brene Brown's. I'm sure you're hearing that a lot as well, where she's interviewing you, right? I'm walking my dogs and listening and listening. And again, been a student of this uh, quite a bit, but I don't know what it was. Something hit me and I'm like, I've got to reach out to him. And this podcast is brand spanking new. So you're probably going, why did she ask me to come? But uh, in some of the context that we'll talk about here in a minute, I think it'll be really clear. But at the same time that I say that, what really hit me about your book was how much you really tried to make sure that people knew that this is for everyone. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I appreciated that so much because I think sometimes we do think that it might just be for so-and-so in this profession or this age group or whatever. Can you talk a little bit more about your learning journey of how you knew you had to bring it to the masses? Well, yeah, sure. I think, you know, my career has been in education and, you know, as a professor, you know, here, but also, you know, the professional work that I do is about building curriculum and this area of social and emotional learning, and then helping to get that into as many schools as possible. And, you know, we're doing well. We're in about 2,500 schools growing every year. But, uh, you know, there's 330 million people in America and how many billions of people across, you know, the world. And so our curriculum is not going to reach everybody. And I felt like it was my obligation to try to get this work out to as many people as possible because, you know, if schools adopt our work, which I hope they do, and it becomes part of preschool to high school, you know, education, that's going to be fabulous. I think the world will be a different place, but um, that's going to take a hundred thousand years to happen. And I don't want to wait that long because the adults who are raising and teaching kids, right, have not had a formal education in emotional intelligence. And my goal is to try to provide them that. I'm so glad you said that, that because at first when I saw the cover of your book, I hadn't listened to an interview yet. And it talked about helping our kids. And I thought, okay, well, that's kids specific. This might not work in the environment I am where I'm working with leaders and adults. And so mm-hmm. that's his whole making it relevant to everybody to sort of basically change our world that we live in from one end of the spectrum to the other, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. So interestingly enough, as I'm listening to this and thinking I'm all woke because I've heard the latest and greatest by Dr. Mark Brackett, then we're interviewing <laughs> somebody else on our podcast who's talking about compassion fatigue in our particular field. And um, awesome. as, yeah, okay. as we're as she's getting interviewed, guess what book she holds up? Da, 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 permission to feel. <laughs> so, oh, so it was really cool to start to see it permeating all sorts of walks of life, of professions, of ages. And so I just keep seeing it showing up. So all roads have led 
to me interviewing Dr. Mark Brackett on the Best Friends podcast. Delighted to be here. Thank you for <laughs> inviting me. Yes. Um, I, I uh, have to tell you that even though we're talking about it being for everybody, now I'm going to give you some context of why I think particularly helpful for animal welfare. Please. So there are some nuances that this field attracts animal lovers by default, as I'm sure you can understand. And then all of a sudden they find themselves running these animal shelters and they find out that the animal shelter is not necessarily always the safest place for pets. So that can be a really challenging place to find yourself as a leader, right? Uh, and so many, many years have gone by where professionals have had to literally practice hardcore cognitive dissidence to survive that situation. And so there's some history there, right? And these same professionals, however, I'm not dismissing their skills and their ability because they are so strong and tough and they're, they're doing amazing things, mm -hmm. but to find themselves with this love for animals and then ending up in a situation where they end up having to take pets lives prematurely. This is where some of this work is really key. Yeah. It's gotta be tough. Um, and so we are making progress though. Things, good things are happening. The field is professionalizing. We went from killing 20 million pets annually back in the eighties to now we're less than a hundred thousand, eight, excuse me, 800,000 annually now, which still is way too many, but it's good changes. And there's so much exciting things that are happening. Um, but there's still that history there. So there's some healing that's taking place, right? For sure. And these are the leaders that, you know, Best Friends is is uh, working with and have so much hope for, and they're doing so many amazing things. So one of the reasons that I thought us talking here today for that audience in particular is that the silver lining, I'm sure everybody's saying this too with COVID, is that we've almost had to turn this upside down on its head where the communities have had to step in and the shelters have been cleared because they, they thought they were gonna have to shut down and people are taking pets into their homes mm -hmm. as fosters, even temporarily. So it's been really cool to see. And so we're just trying to look at how can we help these leaders who are still trying to heal, but they're our change makers and they're helping us take this field into the future. Do you have any thoughts on that? In terms of helping the leaders? Yeah. You know, I think, you know, it goes back to the, you know, the tenants, you know, of my book, which is that we have to just give them the permission to feel and not make those feelings feel as if they are wrong or bad, right? There's no such thing as a bad feeling. It may be uncomfortable. Um, I may not know what to do with it, but it's not a bad thing. And I think the curiosity is what we want to create. And then also helping people to develop strategies, right? To manage those feelings effectively. Because it's all about like your experience and then managing it to achieve goals, which is like your own health and well-being, good relationships, not having mental health challenges, but yet, you know, good well-being, uh, building, you know, and achieving your dreams. Yeah. We have this executive leadership program that we, it's a six-month program, and we have existing leaders out in the field who are in this program with us. Um, it's a small cohort of 20-some-odd professionals who are working with us on this certification. And one of the first things we talk about is emotional intelligence in that program. Mm -hmm. And I think they were taken aback by that. Not I think, I know, they told us. And it was one of their very favorite parts of the program, our first cohort class, as they 
talk to us about their experiences. Wonderful. I think they thought we were just going to mainly talk about how to run your shelter better, how to run your programs better. And all of a sudden we did this really deep reflective personal work. I think it took them by surprise. Mm -hmm. They were peeling back all these layers, heavy emotions were coming up, but it was really, really impactful for them. And my teacher brain goes to your book and says, okay, we talk about emotions getting in the way of learning. So here we have these leaders carrying these heavy emotions from this history that they've been through because of the way the field's been. And they're sitting in front of us ready to learn, right? So tell me more about some of the emotional piece and the impact that it has on learning. Well, we know that emotions, right, are the drivers of our attentional capacity. So just think about it, right? If I were your teacher right now in this podcast and I'm like, you know, hi, how you doing? Good to meet you. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, boom, you're going to be immediately, well, you'll probably be angry and bored and frustrated and anxious, right? You'll have all these feelings. (laughs) Um, And it's going to impact your ability to concentrate. Like, what question should I ask this guy? You know, so it's just critically important for teachers, for leaders to understand that the emotion system is driving the attention memory learning system and that we need to create environments where people are having more emotions like curiosity and interest than boredom and despair and frustration and hatred and anger. So that's the first piece. Yeah. So I would just say that's the critical piece is to understand how the brain operates that when we're bored, right? People think bored, it's bad. It's not bad or good. It just is what it is. The only problem is, is that if you're in a, important class and you're bored, your brain is saying, there's better things to think about. Let me doodle. Let me fantasize about my next you know, weekend. So you're not present. And we want people to be more present in whatever learning environment they're in. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why this was so powerful. It helped them sort of move through some of those things and almost not get it out of the way, but work through it enough to where they could actually do the work at hand more effectively Mm -hmm. because they've kind of worked through some of the things that maybe they've been holding on to for who knows how long. Right. Um, So it was really cool to see kind of that unfold. Um, The other thing that can kind of be a stereotype is that where the animal welfare field um, attracts animal lovers and they find themselves in this juxtaposition of running a shelter where they're having to actually take prematurely the lives of pets. That's just, you know, a horrible place to find themselves in. Mm -hmm. They can also, there's a stereotype out there that it can also attract people who are in search of some sort of healing generally and sort of redemption in some form. And, and it's no secret that working with companion animals can be healing. So here they come, right. They're like Mm -hmm. seeing that where there could be some ties here. And so, I mean, there's even rescue t-shirts that say who saved who or who rescued who regarding this pet that they may have rescued. So, my question to you is, do you think people who are in search of redemption in some way are more skilled or more open to emotional intelligence development? What are your thoughts on that? I would have to think so just because, you know, it's they're driven, right? There's a drive to make the world a better place, to support people, to make change in the world. You know, I think what I would say, not to get too complicated here, is that that, you know, is a bit more in the personality domain. 
and then in the emotional intelligence domain. However, all the drive mm. and all the compassion and all the interest in making the world, like being a change maker is great. But if you don't have the skills of emotional intelligence on that journey, um, that journey can sometimes not end well. And what I mean by that is that like when we try to make change in the world, like I try to make, I'm trying to make a difference in the education system. You're trying to make a difference, you know, in your area. And there's people who don't, you know, want that change to happen. There are naysayers, there are roadblocks, there is disappointment, there's anxiety, there's frustration, there's endless things that will get in the way of us achieving our goals and dreams. And so where I think the skills of emotional intelligence come in very handy um, are in that dealing with the emotion uh, that is inevitably part of the journey. Love it. Thank you. I, I know that as we've focused on emotional intelligence in the executive leadership certification program, and like I said, the leaders love it. And generally speaking, you know, we're wanting to foster and cultivate a culture of transparency um, and strength because of the fact that the job these leaders take on every day is difficult. And so I'd love to, to hear if you have some tips on ways that we can all stay focused on that improvement and that awareness in our lives. I think it's about, A, we can't do it alone. So we're, we're, you know, we're in this together. And that means whether it be a partner, a spouse, a friend, a colleague, doesn't matter, right? You know, emotions are inherently part of all of our relationships. But the other piece is to become a self-scientist, right? Which is, I think we have to become more aware of our emotions and how they're influencing our judgments and our decisions and just be radically honest with ourselves, you know, is this feeling helping me achieve my dream, my goal? Um, is how I'm regulating my emotion helpful or unhelpful? Am I lying to myself or am I really using an, an effective strategy? And I think that kind of self-inquiry is just really important and it never ends. You know, here I am, I'm 50 now. I've been doing this 25 years professionally. This last couple of weeks, I have been, it has been like a nightmare. I'm triggered by like anything. You know, like you walk by me in the hallway and you don't say hello, I'm triggered. And, you know, you make a weird look while we're having dinner, I'm triggered. You know, it's like <laughs> I ask you for a favor, you don't respond. Immediately, I'm triggered. And it's been tough. And I have to say, like, who, right, what's going on here? Is this about the person or is this about me? 99.999% of the time, it's all about me. So it's like build, you know, practice what you preach, Mark. Like just take a breath, more self-awareness better regulation, be the role model. No pressure being the expert on emotions, right? I know. I, I want a little bit of, you know, of slack, but um, everybody's human. And what makes the emotion system interesting is that it's dynamic. It's relationship driven. It's not like the cold cognitive system, you know, like no matter what state I'm in, for the most part, I'll know that two plus two equals four. Right. But when I get bad news or I get threatened or I feel scared about something, you know, all of a sudden, right, the thinking part of my brain doesn't operate the same way. And so that's why we need these skills to be able to downregulate, upregulate our emotions to solve problems. Yeah. 
I know when I was reading through your book and you had different sections where you're talking about it, you know, at home, you're talking about it at work and you did sort of separate those out. So if you were to give some of these leaders who find themselves the directors of animal shelters and they're making really tough decisions every day and also simultaneously looking at how they completely change this industry altogether, what steps would you give them? What advice would you give them as far as how they might look at beginning to learn more about emotional intelligence in helping them with those scenarios that they find themselves in? Well, I mean, I hate to be a shameless self-promoter, but um, when being interviewed about your book, talk about your book. That's right. Um, so, you know, I wrote the book as a way to give people access, right, to these principles. And it's, it's life's work, but principle one is give yourself the permission to feel all emotions, yeah. every one of them. The second, though, is, is, as I said earlier, strive to be that emotion scientist and not the emotion judge. And that's hard work because we're critical of ourselves. Sometimes we're close to our feelings. We see them as weak. We all have these belief systems, right? That, you know, if I, if I'm, I have feelings about my feelings, you know, I'm the director of a center for emotional intelligence. How can I be anxious? That means I'm not really emotionally intelligent. That's baloney, yeah. right? Like the world is in a really weird place right now. And it would be abnormal for me not to feel anxious or worried, right? Absolutely. It's what I do with that feeling that matters. Do I allow, Do I become a self-saboteur? And do I ruminate all day? And do I watch the news all day? And do I have no routine and let my life crumble? Or do I you know, acknowledge that the feeling is difficult, talk about it, and then find strategies that help me be healthy and stay in good relationships and be productive at work? And that's why I say we have to be preventionists, not interventionists right? Let's be forward looking as opposed to always responding after the tragedy or after we dysregulate and have the meltdown. And that means that we have to develop the skills of emotional intelligence. And as you know, in my book, I talk about the ruler skills. Ruler is an acronym for the five skills of emotional intelligence, right? Recognizing, understanding, labeling, expressing, and regulating. So am I aware, like really aware? <laughs> of my own and your feelings and everyone else's feelings? Am I asking people how they're feeling? Or am I just attributing and projecting? Do I know the reasons? Do I know what makes you happy? What makes you angry? What makes you frustrated and overwhelmed? Am I helping myself and other people label their feelings accurately? E is expressing. So that's a tricky one because there's so many rules around feelings in our world. Like when families, like I grew up in a family, right? You know, like suck it up toughen up. Yeah. So the rule was no expression, right? Expressing my fear as a kid who was bullied was a weakness. Although by not expressing it, what I do, I ate my feelings. I, you know, cried my feelings. I did weird, crazy behavior feelings to express, you know, it, they have to go somewhere. Like when you don't have a place to express, it's either going to be expressed in some kind of substance or aggressive behavior or suppression or repression. And then finally, the regulation strategies. So what do we do to support people in developing those critical emotion regulation skills of positive talk versus negative talk, of reframing the negativity versus blaming everyone for it in terms of self-care, in terms of 
building and maintaining positive relationships in terms of managing our lives smartly. So lots to learn and do and practice and refine. Yes. Yes, I love the RULER acronym. It makes it so easy to remember, to recall as you're trying to be more Mm -hmm. (laughs) self-reflective. Can you tell us a little bit more about the expression aspect? And I know it's big and huge. Uh, Each bucket has its own 17 things we could learn about it. But as far as expressing our emotions healthily, so that it doesn't impact us negatively. And in the workplace, do you have any tips for people who find themselves having to make a life or death decision right there at work, which is going to impact them, right? They're going to feel something about that. Any tips for how to, in the moment, Mm -hmm. express and regulate right as they're feeling those things? Well, I think, you know, it's taking a moment to just pause and breathe and, you know, check in with the feeling. And then I think, you know, for the hard part of the job, I don't, I think it's hard for people to do it alone. I really do. I think that we, we need, you know, buddies and colleagues and partners to talk through these things with. It reminds me of my, I did some work for the Air Force a while back, and this was during the Iraq war. And I I asked a, a pilot, a woman pilot, you know, what do you do with, like you're blowing up these cities, you know, and then you're, landing this plane and going home like how do you deal with that yeah and i said how do you do you know well remember in the in the military you can't talk about it yeah so here they are suffering you know knowing that they're destroying places and then they go home and they have dinner with their kids and their family and there's no strategies and so i said well she goes well when i got the plane i look at my co-pilot and we just make this kind of like we nod to each other like Yep. And that's the end of it. And so those feelings have to go somewhere, right? They do. And and unless we have outlets for them, I think they destroy us. And so I just urge people, you know, in this profession to not feel, don't have feelings about their feelings, just allow themselves to feel the emotions, but then talk about it and try to help normalize their experience for whatever that's worth, you know, yeah. in terms of what they're doing. Something that's been so powerful in that regard is this executive program has a small cohort of people who are practitioners and it's done that very thing for them. So outside of the expression of how much they love the study of the emotional intelligence and the surprise at how much They had to peel away on the layers to get through to figure out their true purpose and their why and all of this development stuff personally. Mm -hmm. One of the very top favorite aspects of this program is to have this community of people who totally understand what they're feeling, have been through the exact similar experiences. And I think it does what you said. It normalizes it, regulates some of the extreme feelings that they might feel in regards to it. And so just that intimate, smaller group of people who get how they're feeling has made a huge, huge difference. So, okay. We have to talk a little bit about animals. Okay. You okay with that? I I just, we just got two puppies last week. Well, you just went right where I wanted you to go. (laughs) I did do a little bit of look, looking at your Instagram and I saw these cute puppies 
being announced there. Yeah. And I noticed you put all these positive feelings right next to their cute little pictures, right? All the feels. I did. So now I want to have, so now how long have you had them? So tell me the time frame we're talking here. How It's been, it'll be two weeks on Sunday. Okay. So the real talk is. Oh, no, it was two weeks. Oh. I can't remember anymore. It feels like it's, they've become such a prominent part of our family. Oh, yay. What is, what is it? We got them. No, it's been two weeks. Two weeks. It'll be three weeks on Sunday. Okay. So the real talk part is. We all know puppies can be exhausted. Yes. Okay. Here it comes. Here it comes. So- I'm a little frustrated because the PP pads are not a hundred percent, but also I'm a little lazy with the training. Uh-huh. I'm a little neurotic mm-hmm. just about like, are they going to the bathroom and are their poopies the right texture and, <laughs> you know, and then the eating, we have eating issues, like how much do they eat and are they eating too much? Are they eating too little? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, there's plenty of issues. Um, but for the most part, the positive emotions do outweigh the negative ones. I have to say. Absolutely. There's a healing balm with animals. Yeah. They're so loving and there's nothing like someone like who jumps up and down and wags their tail. And when you come down the stairs, so it's, it's nice to be, (laughs) to have that greeting. It is that unconditional love. They are the best Mm -hmm. at showing that even if we're grumpy they still wag their tail and wiggle their bums when they see us because they love us unconditionally, even when we're not our best selves. Totally. So we've gone from the broader scope of things to how you're trying to bring this work to the world, make societal change. And it's really fun to be able to relate some of that to what Best Friends is trying to do. And we're trying to bring about a time when there's no more homeless pets and a big societal shift to how communities interact with shelters. And so we're, we're both uh, trying to do a bit of that societal change thing. And I wanted to um, just talk with you a little bit in that context about your concept of emotional revolution. Sure. Um, So about five years ago, I had the opportunity to work with born this way foundation, which was founded by Lady Gaga and her mom, Cynthia Germanada. And we did a study to understand the emotional lives of students. And what we found was that they're tired, they're bored, they're stressed. And then I went on with other partners to study teachers who are frustrated, overwhelmed, and stressed in the workplace. And the list goes on. And, you know, the question is, all right, so how do we go from all these unpleasant feelings that our people are having to more pleasant feelings? How do we close the gap? And, um, I think it's about shifting the narrative in our culture around why emotions matter. And that, you know, my vision is that the emotion revolution is a reality when all leaders and teachers and students and families, you know, are, or have the permission to have all their feelings and have the strategies to use them wisely. School systems and police departments and law schools and schools of education and government agencies right? All take this work seriously. So that's the goal. One, you know, one person, one school, one family, one company, one government at a time. Exactly. Do you feel like some of the research that you've been able to do to have some of the science backing to this is what's really going to be the differentiator between that revolution you dream of, or what do you think is the game changer there for really having that come to fruition? I think 
the research is important because, you know, there are some people who you move them through the heart and there are other people who you just don't have the, they just, they were brought up in families that didn't give them the permission to feel, you know, they've succeeded, you know, without these skills. So they don't really value them. And I think the only way to really get people to value them is to have data and science to show that, guess what? You know, organizations that have leaders with higher emotional intelligence have people who work in those organizations who are happier, healthier, more productive, more ethical, you know, less burnt out. That is a really powerful data. And we have those data. Um, We've done that in very big studies. So I think that's quite rewarding. And uh, it's important that we have it because it's when I show those data to managers and CEOs of companies, I say, this is, you know, what do you think the implications are this for the bottom line for your company, for your organization? And then people start thinking, maybe you're right. This is like seriously important. Maybe you're right. Like I should take this seriously. So the data does make a difference. And the data does show that people with more developed emotional intelligence, they're healthier and happier themselves, but they also create environments where people are healthier and happier and more effective. Yeah, I love it. We uh, did something where we created a community dashboard where now communities can see some of the data around what's happening in their community in regards to pets and shelters. And that's been game changer for us as well. And I think it is what's going to help propel things into the future. And we have an audacious goal that by 2025, shelters will be in a different place than they're at now where they're saving 90% of the lives that come into their shelters. And COVID-19 has brought to fruition changes we've been trying to make for a long time. They're happening all of a sudden faster. So we're looking at this like, okay, how do we not go back? How do we not go back to how we were doing it before? Are you finding in your work that people are starting to be so maybe almost acutely attuned to their emotions right now and and maybe have had good things happen from that and trying to figure out how they sustain those changes? Have you had that come up for you? I think people are a lot more empathic now for people's feelings because now for the first time they've been hit in the head, you know, with these strong feelings, especially anxiety. We did a big study and we showed, you know, that a majority of our workers and families are feeling anxious. And, you know, one, I remember one father said to me recently, I'm a father. Now I'm my son's teacher. I'm the tech coordinator for our house. I'm the custodian. I'm the cafeteria worker, you know? And so I think, you know, this man just hasn't had awakening, you know, around, you know, like this is hard. It's hard to be, you know, it's hard to be a teacher, you know, it's hard to be a parent and a teacher and a this and a that. So I think with every crisis they say comes an opportunity. Obviously I would never want this crisis to happen again, but it did happen. And my hope is that people are going to be more grateful, you know, and a bit more compassionate moving forward. Agreed. 100%. If you are okay with it, I'd love to read a quote from how you ended your book. And before I do that, I'm going to give you a tip of what I hope you can leave our audience with is if you were to tell anyone in our audience what you think the best place to start with all of this is, um, what what that would be. So I'm going to go ahead and read the quote and then let you kind of marinate on what you'll leave our audience with. So you say at the end of your book, 
Emotion skills are the key to unlocking the potential inside each one of us. And in the process of developing these skills, we each, heart by heart, mind by mind, create a culture and society unlike anything we've experienced thus far, very much like the one we might dare to imagine. It's not easy to change a whole society, but we have to try. Our future and our children's future and our pet's future depends on it. Had to add that little pet part in there. How do you feel about that? I love it. And I feel terrible that I didn't include it now. (laughs) I know we need to make that edit. (laughs) I'm just teasing. So now for what you would leave our audience with, what do you think is the best place to start with all of this? There's a lot we've talked about. So best first, next step. I think first step is give yourself the permission to feel your feelings, right? Don't judge your feelings as good or bad. All emotions are information. The second is strive to be an emotion scientist and not an emotion judge. Be curious, be open, try to get granular in terms of what you're feeling, be specific. Um, Don't just clump it as good or bad. Or, you know, if you fail at regulating, don't say it's hopeless, you know, have that growth mindset. And then the third is just practice these skills over and over and over again, like build your vocabulary. You know, that's why I wrote my book to give people the knowledge that they need to accumulate and then practice and refine, you know, over the course of their lives. And then recognize that on this journey of becoming emotionally intelligent, you will fail, as I have about 100 times in the last (laughs) week. My newest strategy is um, I'm trying to teach my family the importance of forgiveness. (laughs) (laughs) Good strategy. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, you gotta forgive me. Come on, people. I'm only human. My mother-in-law, who who lives with us right now, said to me, like, are you really the director of the Center for Emotional (laughs) Intelligence? I'm like, well, I am professionally. So we're going to fail. We've got to forgive ourselves. We've got to forgive others. We've got to apologize and then just get back on and keep working at it because these skills will make a difference in your health, in your relationships, in your decision-making, on your journey to achieving your dreams. Thank you. Great way to end it. Appreciate so much your time. It's an honor to be here with you and so glad to see so many people resonating with your book. It is, it is going to make a difference. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. Go to bestfriends.org slash podcast. There are links to each episode and those episode pages are where you'll find all the cool stuff you need to know from each show. And this one is no different. And send us an email. We always love hearing from you. It's the same thing, just switched around. Podcast at bestfriends.org. Podcast at bestfriends.org. I'd like to thank the producers of the show, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. Please take care of yourselves and each other and be safe. I'm John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.